In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hey, your alarm's going off. It's time to get up. Don't bother me. I'm sleeping. Many of us, I think, enjoy an occasional opportunity to sleep in. Sometimes it seems that alarm clock comes just a little bit too early. And so you might reflexively hit snooze or turn it off entirely, roll over and go back to sleep. Sometimes you turn off your alarm and then you wake up in a panic, disoriented and afraid you're missing out on the day. Or when you know there's something critical on your calendar and since you don't want to miss it, you might set multiple alarms. Maybe you put one across the room Or you ask someone who reliably wakes up early to make sure that you get up in the morning. Even so, even when you've asked for a wake-up call, you might be annoyed with the person who delivers it. And that's at least partly because while you're asleep, you're not thinking clearly. It takes a moment to re-engage with reality. For many people throughout history, suddenly being awakened by an invading army wasn't unusual. That's why many cities would put a watchman on the wall. Vigilantly paying attention, he would cry out and warn the city of impending danger. While it's good to have his warning, his call is inherently jarring. If he is quiet, that means all is at peace. And so you prefer days when he is quiet. Because if he is shouting, it means that trouble is near. That's why the punishment for a watchman who fell asleep on the job was so severe. His lack of attention could mean the destruction of an entire city. Today's chief hymn gives us that call. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying. Awake, Jerusalem, arise. To call to those who are asleep. Wake up. The call is issued to Jerusalem, that is, to the Christian church. Awake and arise, stop sleeping, and pay attention. Of course, you probably know this isn't really a sermon about alarm clocks. It's about being awake spiritually. A theological alarm clock. Although... We should also add, physically sleeping through the sermon isn't a great idea theologically. Now, the theological alarm clock most often sounds like preaching. It's what you asked for when you came to this church. That the church would alert you to what she knows to be sinful and to point you to what is good. That the church would sound the alarm, repent, How do you wake and meet him when you come with sin? Can it truly be joyful to meet the Lord who comes to judge sin 
when you yourself are full of sin? Can you be glad to meet the defeater of all evil when your heart and mind are evil? Thus, the answer of repentance. Sorrow over your sin and trust in Christ. Now, usually we think of repentance as something sad, but repentance is an act of hope. Repentance looks to Jesus, trusting that he is merciful and that he will forgive your sins. Well, I've heard this alarm before. I know that repentance is good. I know it's the proper way to prepare for Jesus, but it's not that easy to plead guilty of sin. It's still kind of uncomfortable and awkward. It's hard to admit that I've lived as if I matter most, that my thoughts and desires are soiled with sin, that my love for others has failed. I don't like to say any of those things, so I don't. And when the law accuses me, I do whatever is necessary to get out of the range. I soften its demand. I try to turn down the volume on its alarm. I redirect it somewhere else. I make the law accuse others and excuse me. I really don't want to stop and deal with my sin. It's easier to ignore it, to pretend that it isn't there, that it won't really hurt me. I know it's good and right to confess my sin, but I've got more important things to do. I know that faith is given to me by God and that he nourishes it with his holy word and sacraments. Surely he's not going to let my fascination with sin get in the way of my salvation, is he? I mean, I'd rather honestly spend my time and energy and and my money, too, on on other things. Yes, I, I know it's worthless to satisfy my sinful cravings, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to focus on what is worthless. I'm going to invest in the things that don't matter to my salvation. It's okay, isn't it? I know I have salvation, but that's for someday off in the future. I have faith now, and I can get by on that. I don't need to think about having faith tomorrow. But the preachers are crying out. The night is almost over. Awake, O church, and repent. Prepare to meet the bridegroom. He is coming. Be ready. I know. It's the end of the church year. And pastor's going to talk about the end of the world and getting ready for it. In fact, in the church, the end comes every year. And not just every year, but every Sunday. Week after week. The warning is the same. Destruction is coming. Repent. Leave your sin behind. Sigh. But I'm okay right now. I have all I need for my faith today. Everything is fine. 
so long as disaster doesn't come in my lifetime, I don't have to worry about it. I have King Hezekiah for an example, one of Judah's righteous kings. The Lord sent Isaiah to the prophet, sent Isaiah the prophet to the king, saying that the whole nation would be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. His own sons would become eunuchs under the Babylonian king. It was decidedly bad news. But Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not? If there will be peace and security in my days, I don't have to worry about those who will come after me. So long as there is peace and safety for me, who cares what happens when I'm gone? Why should I care whether my church will be here in a hundred years? I and most everyone I know will be dead and gone by then. Let tomorrow worry about itself. I mean, Jesus will forgive it, right? I know the alarm is ringing, but I'd really rather just be sleeping right now. Yes, I, it's true that I want to be awake, but later. Well, maybe that isn't you. Maybe you aren't so dismissive of the future. Maybe you're focused on the good works of love that God has called you to now, and this is a good thing. But an emphasis on outward works can also be harmful. It's possible to have the outward characteristics of faith, but without faith. You can gather in the assembly of the baptized on Sunday morning. You can be where the word is preached and attached to the physical elements of Christ's promises. But you can do this without faith. It doesn't require faith to walk through those doors and to sit in these pews. This is what those five foolish virgins had. They were baptized, that perhaps confirmed they went to church. They had outward faith and goodness, outward purity and piety, outward love and good works. They had all the outward appearance of faith, but their faith was dead. Their faith didn't want anything, didn't believe anything, didn't say anything, didn't do anything. It just kind of sat there. They never bothered to use it. They didn't think they would need to. They thought they could go to church, mouth the words, act the part, and God would save them in the end. Perhaps they had had faith at one time, but now it's dead. Now they merely pretend to have what they have lost. They think they can LARP as a Christian and it will be good enough for God. But the Lord's warning stands. The way things are now will suddenly end. Like the coming of labor pains upon a pregnant woman, there might be a delay, but there is no escape. 
The only way out is through. Through the warning and to the end. Your spiritual alarm clock is ringing. Now louder, now softer. But still it rings. Whether you pay attention or not, it's ringing. Now the foolish virgins finally pay attention, though. That midnight cry awakens them from spiritual lethargy. Finally, they understand it's time to take their faith seriously. And perhaps they are now ready to show Jesus just how devoted they really are. But then, one by one, their lamps flicker, and with a little puff of smoke, their lights begin to go out. Suddenly, they realize that they need oil. They ask the wise virgins in their company to share, but it is not possible to give faith to another. So with their lamps running low on the oil of faith and the Holy Spirit, they hurry off to the church. But the church that had given out the oil for free isn't open at midnight. We aren't told whether they find a way to light their lamps or not, but they eventually come to the wedding feast. While they had been away, the bridegroom had come to take his bride home with him. He and the wise virgins have gone into the feast, and the door is now shut. Though they press and bang on the door, it won't be reopened. Though they call him Lord, Jesus does not know them. From within, they hear the oath. Amen, I say to you, I do not know you. It is as if Jesus says to them, I am not your Lord. You fell away. You refused the gift of faith. You refused to believe that you needed my blood and my righteousness for your salvation. The foolish virgins demand to be let in on their own terms. But God's judgment has been rendered. It cannot be undone. They are the words of eternal excommunication. And the foolish are left outside. They had looked at their faith like it was a spiritual Wikipedia. Or an insurance policy that I don't really need it today, but it will be there Someday, when I might need it. But looking at their faith as something disconnected from them means that they don't actually have it. They think they can play with sin today and it won't actually hurt them. They think they can keep certain sins secret from God and indulge in them and no one will know. So it will be fine. The foolish think they can handle temptation themselves. They have misunderstood their own weakness. Thus they don't recognize their need for help. Do not be deceived. Deliberate secret sin is destructive to faith. 
And we see here also that not all the virgins get to go in. There is actually a division. Some are in and some are out. This division exists now, and it will be fully revealed at the end. It's painful for us to acknowledge this. It goes against my idea that God wouldn't send someone I love to hell. It means that some of my loved ones might be outside the faith. It means that all those without faith will be shut out at the end. The foolish virgins were fools because they refused to see their need. Their lives conformed to the standards of decency that prevailed in their place and time. But they were spiritually dead. They didn't repent of their sins and rely on God's grace in Christ. It had never really crossed their mind that without the blood and righteousness of Jesus, they would be lost. It's how anyone is lost in rejecting Jesus. So then, how shall I prepare according to God's word? When all those virgins in the parable are asleep, they all look the same. They are all virgins. They all have the outward marks of faith. They are all outwardly virtuous. But while they sleep, Jesus already knows the difference between them. Five are foolish, five are wise. You have been given this wisdom, this oil of faith in holy baptism. But this faith is to be fed and nourished. Being baptized means that you have enemies. You're an enemy of Satan and the world and your own sinful flesh. And these enemies want nothing better than for your faith to be abandoned and starved and destroyed. So if the Christian wants his way to be lit by the light of God's word, he must continue to hear that word. He must recognize his ongoing need. Those foolish virgins thought all was well, but they were spiritually dead. They didn't repent of their sin. They didn't see faith as actually necessary. They didn't look to the future. You see, what distinguishes the virgins in our text is not their good works, but wisdom. And the word that's used here for wisdom is not the usual word for wisdom. It's not Sophia. It's the word phronomos, which elsewhere is translated as shrewd. That is, one who thoughtfully considers the future, plans for it, and acts accordingly. It comes from the word to think. It means not just knowledge about God, but meditating upon his word. It means to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's teachings. To be wise in the Holy Spirit means that you want to learn and to ponder the mysteries of God. 
Now, some will hear this as a matter of the law. And I suppose it is. It is the command to feed and to exercise your faith just the way that you feed and, exer- and, and, and engage in activity with your body. But at the same time, none of us thinks it's a horrible burden to have to open your mouth and to put food into it. And when it comes to food, we also have to be taught what food is good, what will help the body and what and not hurt it. That's how it is with faith, too. God wants his children to care about what he says. We know that his voice is the most important voice. God wants us to listen to him because we love his voice. And we know that voice is life. So it's what we hear in Deuteronomy. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, we all want to be able to meet Jesus on the last day with joy and not with sorrow. And the only way to do this is to have faith. It means to look to the future in wisdom. And there we see a promise of peace and rest for the Christian. But we know that that time is not yet. The temptation and the foolish give in to this. The temptation is to take this rest early. Not that rest is wrong, but that we take rest on our own terms instead of God's. These foolish virgins think that they can rest from spiritual things. But living faith does not rest. Faith fights against despair. And this actually is how our confessions describe the divine service. That what's going on in the the divine service is faith fighting against despair. That this is what God is doing here. So that means we aren't just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come and take his church home. Rather, we're listening to his voice. Learning and treasuring all that he says to us. Hearing what he promises. Talking about what he says. We know also that faith isn't for sale or for rent. Faith is a gift. It comes from hearing God's word. Through such gospel proclamation, the Holy Spirit creates faith. It's not produced by your efforts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He creates faith in your heart. Thus, wisdom knows that God's word gives this life. Wisdom desires to be with God. Faith is wise because it expects God to be true to himself and to keep his promises and to be good to us. Oil, when it is burned for light, runs out. 
It needs continual replenishing. God's word creates faith, but malnourished faith, when it is tested, runs out. It needs continual replenishing. Faith is replenished by God's word. Faith delights in God's word. Faith can never get enough of God's word. Perhaps, though, these desires, as you consider them, you see that these desires are weak in you. Maybe you find yourself bored with the gospel. Maybe you've become tired of hearing about the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you're sometimes annoyed with how much talk you find here about the cross and the death of Jesus. If that describes you, your oil may be low. Perhaps your lamp is going out. Your love is becoming cold. And so you come to this place because you want to have what Jesus gives. And when you come to this place, you find that you meet Christ, the bridegroom. Christ is the bridegroom. His church is the bride. The groom gives himself up for his bride. All that he is is hers. He gives her his name, his identity, his property, and sets her in his heart as his greatest treasure. She submits to him, bearing his name, claiming his identity, and regarding whatever belongs to him as her very own. You see, you are not mere guests at this wedding feast that you have been called to. You are members of the Holy Bride of Jesus, the communion of saints washed clean in his blood. You are the bride. Christ is your husband. And as a husband gives all he has to his bride, so Christ gives all he has to his church. His defeat of sin and death and the devil gives you victory over these three tyrants. Christ's eternal kingdom now comes to you with heaven as your home. Forgiveness and peace and gladness, they all are yours. The church is about to embark once again into the season of Advent, of preparation for our Lord's coming. You will hear the midnight cry. John the Baptist, that mighty voice, cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Do you wish to be prepared? And fill your lamps. Hear the words spoken as our Lord has spoken. Listen to faithful preaching that the doors of this feast are not closed upon you that you enter with all the saints in the joy that has no end. Hear God's word. The gospel declares that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And by this proclamation, by the promise of God's love and forgiveness and grace, he creates faith in your heart. Daily return to your baptism where all sins and evil desires are drowned and die. Partake of the Holy Communion, for it is the coming wedding feast. 
And even if you are still tempted to fall asleep, listen to the cry. The alarm is going off. Christ is coming. Continue to pray. Pray that your Lord Jesus would continue to send those who will rouse you from slumber. You know what's going to happen. Jesus will return, raise the dead, judge the world, and bring all believers to himself in heaven. So hear the midnight cry, wake, awake. This cry to awake and arise, the call of the watchman is a joyful cry. For it means the wedding feast of the bridegroom now begins. At this joyful cry, this thrilling call, the church in heaven and on earth breaks forth in rejoicing. Wake up and meet your Lord. Those who were ready went in with the bridegroom to the marriage feast. What will it be like for them? St. John writes in Revelation 21, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. In the holy name of Jesus. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.